My name is Stuart Barry, and welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series presented by Academy Travel of conversations with our academics and experts from all around the world, one subject at a time. Academy Travel is the leading provider of small group culturally themed tours with expert tour leaders and dedicated tour managers. We also offer a range of online lectures and short courses for the curious traveller. For all the details, visit our website at academytravel.com.au. For such a short-lived dynasty, the Tudor period in England holds an amazing fascination, even today, from historical research, popular novels, and even a West End blockbuster musical. To explain the life and times of Henry VII and VIII, we're joined today by Lauren Mackay, Lauren holds MA and PhD in History and is a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. She specialises in the early modern world and is the author of three books, and her fourth, Thunder Through the Realms, Five Kingdoms and the Shaping of Early Modern Europe, is due out in late 2024. Lauren is a frequent presenter at historical venues around the UK and for the BBC History Weekends, and is a regular contributor for BBC History and All About History magazines. She has featured as an historical consultant for a number of television programs, including Henry VIII and the King's Men, The Berlin's A Scandalous Family, which drew on her PhD research, and Blood, Sex and Royalty, which is on Netflix. Thanks for joining us today, Lauren. When we say the Tudors, who are we talking about exactly? How did the Tudors become a royal dynasty? The Tudors, they're a fascinating dynasty. They're a very short-lived dynasty. They only span from 1485 to 1603. They emerge from the tail end of what we call the Wars of the Roses, which is a devastating civil war that takes place over a number of decades in England. And it's between two houses, York and Lancaster, and they're both cadet branches of a greater dynasty called the Plantagenet dynasty. And they fight for, uh, as I said, a number of decades You have Lancaster kings, then you have York kings, and then Lancaster kings, and then York kings again. And Henry Tudor is a young man who emerges. He is of Lancastrian descent, and he challenges the Yorkist king Richard III on the battlefield, on the Battle of Bosworth Field, I should say for the crown and he emerges victorious and what Henry Tudor does is very very clever because he puts an end to the Wars of the Roses he marries the Yorkist daughter Elizabeth of York and she's the daughter of the Yorkist King Edward IV and she's the niece of Richard III and he unites Lancaster and York and this is a really pivotal moment in history because now we have a brand new dynasty called the Tudor dynasty He is the very first Tudor king. But as I said, the Tudor dynasty is very short-lived. So we have Henry VII followed by his son, Henry VIII. And then Henry is followed by, in quick succession, by his three children, Edward VI, Mary Tudor and Elizabeth I. So short-lived but a very popular dynasty. Okay, obviously they are short-lived. Well, then why are they so popular in fictional portrayals? I mean, everything seems to be about the Tudors. Yes, I'm grateful for that in part because I'm I'm a Tudor historian, (laughs) so it's great for me and for other Tudor historians. I suppose it's just, it's such a unique story. It's so unique to its time and place. When else have you had a young king, and I think we're talking about Henry VIII in particular here, emerge as sort of this golden prince? He 
changes England entirely. He changes the religious landscape, the political landscape. He marries six wives. Well, I should say he marries six times and has six wives. And he ignites, you know, some of the most incredible uh, religious revolutions in, in early modern Europe. But I suppose it's not just about Henry himself. It's the, the personalities of his court. We really have individuals who, for some reason, still resonate with us hundreds of years later. His wife, certainly, Anne Boleyn, his second queen in particular, it might be one of the most famous historical characters in the world still and the subject of so uh, so many fictional portrayals. But also this, this drama of the age is set against a backdrop, a broader backdrop in early modern Europe as the world is moving, shifting away from medieval, feudalistic society. It's an era of expansion, of global politics. Everyone is enjoying the Renaissance. So it's a, it's a really exciting age and Tudor England is part of it. So I guess it's, it's a number of reasons and certainly it's, it's not slowing down anytime soon. The, the Tudor period lives and breathes centuries later. The very simplistic view I have is that he ignited the English Reformation because he wanted to divorce his first wife to marry Anne Boleyn. Is that right? Well, Henry would say, no, absolutely not. How could you say it's such a personal issue? But of course, that's exactly what happens. Henry VIII is, at his core, conventionally Catholic. He's the poster boy of of, of Tudor Catholicism, really. You know, he wrote impassioned defences of the papacy, and that's why he earned the title for day defence or the defender of the faith. But when Henry doesn't get what he wants... Yes, he's going to ignite an entire reformation. It is tied into him wanting to extricate himself from his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. And because the Pope won't give him an annulment of his first marriage, he decides, well, I'm going to do it myself. And in so doing, he creates, the yes, the Church of England. But the funny thing about, as I said, about Henry VIII is he doesn't necessarily believe in all of it. What he likes is to be the head of the Church, but he's still conventionally pious in all of his actions. So he does absolutely ignite it, but it starts to really unfold under the reins of uh, his children, especially his son, Edward VI and Elizabeth. But he definitely gets all the credit for it. As you mentioned, the Renaissance was underway in Europe. Do you think Henry was a Renaissance king? Would you describe him as that? Absolutely. The interesting thing is that England is a little behind the eight ball when it comes to the Renaissance because they have spent so many decades in that civil war. They haven't had the money. They haven't had the attention span for anything that's going on beyond England's shores. They're so busy just killing each other, basically. So when Henry VII takes the throne, he actually does ignite the Renaissance in England because he has spent so many years abroad. He visited Paris as a young man. He stayed um, in, in courts in Brittany because he was an exile for so long. And what he is exposed to there are the, the undercurrents of the Renaissance, absolutely. And he brings that back with him. So Henry VII, I mean, historians tend to say that Henry VII was miserly and didn't like to spend a dime. And that's absolutely true. He didn't like to invest in anything except for Renaissance culture and literature and architecture. He really does go on a bit of a spending spree. And I think he understands that that's going to help situate England on the chessboard of early modern Europe. He wants England to be a power player, but to be seen as good as, if not better, than the other realms in Europe. So we see uh, a lot of Burgundian traditions from the courts of Burgundy, which is in parts of Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, as well as French and Italian customs being introduced. And I think one of the most exciting is Henry VII introduces the idea of the joust in England, 
Before that, we have the melee combat, which is a bunch of knights basically charging each other. But in the courts of Burgundy in France, you see, of course, this one-on-one knightly combat. And Henry VII thinks, oh, that's great. I'm going to introduce that. And for the first time, you see the pageantry is tied up in, in terms of entertainment rather than actually having to train for warfare. And we also see this uh, shifting away from this idea that the fortresses and castles of England are there only to protect the empire or to protect the realm. Henry VII understands the beauty of architecture, of European-style architecture, and you see a lot of red-bricked uh, buildings being being built by under Henry VII's reign in the style that you'd see in Mechelen, in Brussels, and other parts of Europe. So he's, he's definitely conscious of what Renaissance realm should look like, and he is a great patron of the art and of humanist literature. And he also subverts the natural order of things in England. And this is part of Renaissance thought. It's this idea of new men. And the idea of new men is basically... You know, because we have to remember the hierarchical stu- structure of Tudor England is very, very entrenched. So you have the king or the monarch and then below him the nobles, the dukes, the earls, the, the viscounts, the barons, and then everyone else. What Henry VII decides to do is he says, well, that's great, you're noble, but what can you do for me? I, I, I'm, I would rather actually uh, promote someone from nowhere who is going to rise on the back of his own political acumen, his own skill, his own charisma, his own talents. And this is very much a part of the humanistic ideals as well as this, as I I call it the the new men so a galaxy of talents that he begins to promote so it's it definitely the Tudors bring about the Renaissance Henry VIII is absolutely he epitomizes the Renaissance he's halfway there I mean he's six foot something strawberry blonde hair piercing blue eyes he broad shouldered he's absolutely gorgeous and on top of that so he's physically fit but on top of that he's sensitive he is well grounded in language he also is well grounded in political and religious and philosophical discourse and he is also a great patron of the arts he throughout his reign he ends up being a patron of Hans Holbein one of the most important artists of the the renaissance and he also spends on building projects and I think Henry is very aware that at the time that he takes the throne of England, young men around him are also taking up the mantle of kingship in other realms of Europe. You've got Francis I, who ends up building Chateau de Chambord, which is the very, you know, <laughs> the very the crown jewel of French Renaissance culture. You have Charles V, who's the Holy Roman Emperor. And you even have Suleiman the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire, and he wants to epitomize the age as well. He wants to be seen by Europe as a Renaissance prince. So he's he's got competition. Uh, but I think it's also, it's something that is deeply important to him. He has genuine passion for all things Renaissance culture, Italian, French and whatnot. So definitely the Tudors are important to the Renaissance and Henry VIII, I think, absolutely epitomized the Renaissance as well. Was Henry VII long lived? Is that part of the reason he developed so much of these extra interests? Not particularly. Particularly, I think it's it's more that when Henry VII takes the throne, he takes it by force. And that's always a bit of a dangerous position to be in. So I think that part of instilling this idea of culture and sophistication, he's also cementing his reign. He's showing England that he, they've come into a new era and it's going to be an era of peace. And London and England is going to be a, a cosmopolitan hub and it's going to be seen by the rest of the world where it's been, you know, it was so forgotten. I think. And and, some historians call it a bit of an island backwater during the 14th and 15th centuries. So I think that's very much on his mind. How does he cement his reign? Well, if you can't make, you know, magnificent war, make peace in a magnificent way. And that's what Henry VII, that's what really is important to him. Henry VIII's six wives, 
they're probably just as famous, if not more famous, than Henry himself. Who are they? And rightly so, I think. You have six incredibly different women, and I I could do a whole podcast on these six wives, but I'm I'm going to try and keep it short. Uh, Henry VIII's first wife is Catherine of Aragon. She's the daughter of the Spanish power couple, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon, and they are the great crusaders of of Europe. And uh, Catherine of Aragon has this incredible royal education. She's brought up in the Alhambra in Granada, so she has this incredible backstory. And she actually comes to England to marry Henry VIII's older brother, Prince Arthur, who was destined to be the second Tudor king. Arthur dies and after some years of debate, Catherine then marries Henry VIII. Now, she's a formidable woman. As I said, she has this royal education. She's probably more educated than Henry and the rest of his wives put together. It doesn't end well for Catherine, but then we have Henry VIII's second wife, and she's unique as well, Anne Boleyn. She is the daughter of a very famous and well-respected ambassador and courtier, Thomas Boleyn, who I did my PhD on, actually. And he sets up for his daughter, a European education in the courts of some of the most sophisticated individuals of the age, in particular Margaret of Austria. She's the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. And Maximilian is pretty much the Renaissance in a nutshell. So Anne Boleyn uh, has these, her formative years in these incredible uh, Renaissance uh, courts. And she also then goes to serve the French King Francis and his Queen Claude. And she resides in Amboise. Now Amboise is the uh, the resting place of Leonardo da Vinci. That's of course, Leonardo da Vinci was part of the French court at Amboise. So Anne Boleyn, we don't know for sure, but it's entirely plausible that she met Leonardo da Vinci. So when Anne Boleyn comes back to England, I mean, whoa, what a woman. So of course, Henry falls in love with her, ignites the English Reformation, as we said. It doesn't end well for Anne Boleyn either. In 1536, she's executed on trumped up, absolutely false charges of treason and adultery because Henry's, this is just how Henry rolls. Uh, and his third wife, Jane Seymour, is pretty much the antithesis of both of both Henry's first queens. She is a, a modest young English woman from a, a slightly noble family, but she's not she hasn't got any particularly fantastic education. She's just a very a very normal young woman. And she's actually the wife who Henry loved the most because she gives him his uh, son and heir, the long way awaited son and heir Edward, and she dies very shortly after giving birth, I think only 12 days. And suddenly Henry has no wife and he doesn't have one waiting. So this is a bit of an awkward situation for Henry. And eventually his fourth marriage is to a, a woman named Anne of Cleves, and she comes from the Duchy of Cleves, which is northeastern uh, Germany now, just near the Belgian border. What's interesting about Anne of Cleves is that she comes from a very Lutheran area. So this is England trying to situate itself within the the Lutheran part of Europe. I think, you know, England is just really, really sick of trying to oscillate between all the Catholic realms that they're never they're never quite getting along. And this is a really bold move on on the part of Henry VIII's uh, chop henchman and thug in a doublet, Thomas Cromwell. It's a disaster. It's annulled uh, so, so quickly because neither Henry nor Anne like each other at all. And Henry's already got his eye on another lady-in-waiting, a young girl called Catherine Howard. What's interesting about Catherine Howard is she is the first cousin of Anne Boleyn. So her father is Anne Boleyn's mother's younger brother. So, I mean, marrying a first cousin, it's a bit odd. And what's incredible about this is that she dies the same way. She is executed on, again, charges of adultery, this time maybe a little bit more true. 
and Henry VIII helps himself to a sixth wife. And by this time, England's a bit like, do we send a gift basket? Must we? I mean, we're up to, <laughs> let's, you know. All right, very good for you. Uh, but what's interesting about Catherine Parr is you almost feel that we've come full circle because Catherine Parr's mother served Catherine of Aragon. And it's believed that Catherine's even named for Catherine of Aragon. I don't know that Henry VIII would like to, to think too much about that. But Catherine Parr is, uh, she's twice widowed. She has no children of her own. And it's not necessarily a feisty love match. It's a meeting of minds. And there's a, a real uh, companionship. This is the vibe that you get from Henry's sixth marriage. Now, Catherine, Catherine Parr is an absolute reformist. She is uh, fiercely passionate about... Um, I mean, we'd call her a Protestant in, in this day and age. And she almost actually is arrested herself and executed because a number of Catholics are going against her. They, she's, she's got quite a reputation for trying to lead Henry back into the Reformation. Uh, but she manages to survive uh, against all the odds. And she survives a few years after Henry VIII's reign. But I think it's, it's, as I said, it's six extraordinary stories and they all are so intertwined. It's extraordinary. And I, I, I think absolutely that they are, they should be seen as more famous than Henry VIII themselves because to me, they really make the age more than Henry does. And of course, now they become a pop musical. I haven't seen it, but I, I've heard good, good things. It's actually I know. good. <laughs> Is it? Oh, good. Yeah. Yes, it's quite, it's quite an irreverent homage and I, I love the idea of it. You mentioned in there, you threw in the name Thomas Cromwell. <laughs> yes. I've got to ask you. Okay. Tell us about Thomas Cromwell. Well, for mafia offers you can't refuse, look no further than Thomas Cromwell. He is actually, he's an extraordinary individual of the age. He uh, he comes from nowhere. He's a boyfriend partner. He's the son of a blacksmith. And he rises in the household of Cardinal Wolsey. And he emerges to become one of the most powerful men of the Tudor age. And what's fantastic about Thomas Cromwell is he's such a man of the world. He spent time in the army in Italy. He spent a lot of time on the continent. But he's obviously really one of the power players at court and he's very very disliked because of the power that he wields but he changes the political landscape of Tudor England as well he changes government he oh my gosh I mean he's such a revolutionary and for a long time he's been incredibly unpopular but lately in the last maybe maybe decade we're seeing a bit of a turnabout in, mostly in thanks to Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall trilogy is okay there's actually more to Thomas Cromwell than we think there are human elements to him. He's quite a brilliant mind and I, I don't think he necessarily uh, deserves the negative reputation that has become so entrenched. With so many books written about the Tudors, one can only assume that we have lots of evidence about the period, but what kind of sources have actually survived and where are they located? I find the English sources are very interesting and you can locate, uh, there's such a wealth of material still, the day-to-day -day, uh, documentation. You can find that in the British Library as well as the National Archives in Kew. But if you really want to know Henry VIII, you don't need to know what the ambassadors in England are saying about their own king. You're never going to get a clear picture of Henry there. You go to Europe. And in particular, you go to the Archive, which is in Vienna. And that's where all the imperial documents are held. So the documents pertaining to the Holy Roman Empire and the Habsburg Charles V. And that's where I always go to, uh, when, especially when I was writing my first book on the imperial ambassador to the Tudor court, Ustas Chapuis, all of his thousands and thousands of letters uh, about Henry VIII are 
are written there. And you're always going to get a clearer picture of, well, who is Henry the man? Because he was a conundrum to the foreign ambassadors. So definitely Vienna, but also the Archive Generals in Paris. You have all the French ambassadorial reports from ambassadors such as Jean de Belay, Charles de Marillac, and they are incredibly important narratives of Henry VIII. And I do think you get a clearer picture of the, the man and the monarch in these foreign sources. With so much happening under Henry VIII during his reign, what sort of legacy did he leave behind? Well, the obvious one, of course, is the Church of England and this concept of monarch being the head of church and state. But we have some more recondite examples, and they're they're quite interesting. Firstly, Henry VIII is responsible for actually uh, creating what we know as the Royal Navy. Before the reign of Henry VIII, you had, they had ships, but he actually establishes the concept of a royal navy. And he, I think he expands the naval fleet by, I don't know, if 65 ships or something by the end of his reign. So I think it was very important to him that England be seen as a naval power. And of course, England does go on to become an incredible naval empire. And that really is due to Henry VIII. But we have other really interesting examples. We have him to thank for, uh, I guess, the modern day postal service, which sounds extraordinary. But during Henry VIII's reign, or I should say before Henry VIII's reign, there was no such thing. I mean, we had messengers and whatnot, but nothing really official. During Henry VIII's reign, he establishes a system whereby every town in England has to have a fresh horse, always ready to deliver dispatches and letters between the king and the court and the town in question. And it was called the King's Post. And that was absolutely the the ground, the, the you know the blueprint for the Royal Postal Service. But perhaps most importantly for historians and genealogists, anybody uh, interested in the period, is that in 1538 under Cromwell, but certainly at Henry's behest, every parish church in the land had to record every birth death, marriage, and christening. Now, before that, you wouldn't believe this, but unless you're really, really important, your date of birth isn't going to matter. And that's why, for example, Anne Boleyn, um, she's one of the most famous individuals of the Tudor age, we don't know when she's born. We think perhaps 1501, but perhaps 1507. We have no idea. And that's because she's born before the implementation of this system. So after 1538, uh, it, it's so much easier for historians. And of course, I mean, that's the it's the very first birth, death, and marriage registry. So it's a phenomenal contribution that Henry has made, I think, and things that we don't necessarily think of. Everywhere you go around the UK, you see royal terms in The Hobbit, but I've never heard of Henry VIII's term. Where <laughs> yeah. is it? I had that problem when I, when the first time I went to England, I thought it must be around Westminster somewhere. What's interesting about Henry's tomb is that he had grand plans for it from the very beginning of his reign. And so did his Lord Chancellor, Thomas Wolsey. And Wolsey was in the middle of constructing the most elaborate, sumptuous tomb. It was going to be extraordinary. In particular, he had these lovely gold angels and a black marble sarcophagus. Now, when Wolsey is deposed and he dies, guess who pinches that sarcophagus? Henry VIII. He thinks, oh, this is a much, much nicer version than what I was thinking of. But by the end of Henry VIII's reign, because the coffers are so depleted by various wars with France and and trying to keep Scotland in line, probably building the Royal Navy as well, he doesn't have money to sort of complete it. Now, he writes in his will and testament that his tomb is almost complete. It's a very odd thing to lie in one's will and testament, but he does. It's not anywhere near completion. And the task is supposed to fall to his son and heir, Edward VI. Now, Edward VI is a young boy. He inherits uh, a half-bankrupt kingdom and is 
is also very, very what we'd call Protestant. He doesn't believe in all this idolatry and all of this pomp and pageantry surrounding death. It's just not his thing. So he doesn't really do anything for Henry VIII's tomb. And then he dies after only six years and his half-sister Mary takes the throne. She does absolutely nothing for Henry's tomb. And I, I suppose, I mean, considering how he treated her mother, Catherine of Aragon, and he kept them apart for so many years, she wasn't allowed to even visit her mother. I don't blame Mary for doing nothing for her father's tomb. And then it falls to Mary's half-sister Elizabeth, the daughter of Henry and Anne Boleyn, and she also does nothing. So there's, there's absolutely no tomb. The, the, I think the funny part is that you can still see that lovely black marble sarcophagus in St. Paul's Cathedral, and it actually houses Lord Nelson, <laughs> the Lord Admiral <laughs> Nelson. So, so, so where is Henry? Henry, well, I'll get to that. Henry God. is buried under a slab uh, alongside Jane Seymour and Charles I, I believe, under a slab in St. George's Chapel at Windsor. And there's just a plaque commemorating the fact that he's there. But he's buried, you know, it's a bit of a group burial. As I said, he's got Jane Seymour. I think Charles the first and an infant child of Queen Anne. So it's an absolute. I mean, it, it's it's obviously not the kind of burial he envisioned, and it is. It's just so sort of ironic that such a king who was so obsessed with legacy and what he was going to leave in the image of the Tudor dynasty, and you trip over him in the middle of Windsor. It, it's it's extraordinary. He ends up with just a plaque. Just a <laughs> plaque. I mean, nothing could nothing nothing could serve him better, really. <laughs> <laughs> when visiting the UK. What sites should you go to if you're interested in the Tudors? The nice thing is that there is so much that still remains of the Tudor period. And I think probably my favourite is Hampton Court, which was uh, bought and built by Cardinal Wolsey and then was handed over to Henry VIII fully furnished when he displeased Wolsey. And there you can still see the incredible Tudor kitchens. It's just an extraordinary place where you can really walk through centuries of history as well as the incredible Great Hall and the long gallery and the inner chambers. But also you've got a lot of the, the estates that are still connected to the six wives. Hever Castle, for example, in Kent is the childhood home of Anne Boleyn. And you can really feel all of the influences of the period there. You also have Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire, where Catherine Parr lived for some time. Really extraordinary uh, states. But you can also find it in London, even in the Tower of London. You can still feel the Tudor influence there. And at Windsor, a number of palaces and castles still around the country. So there's still so much. If you just unwind the centuries, you peel back the layers, the Tudors are still there there in plain sight. And you mentioned Hilary Mantel's trilogy, Wolf Hall, yes. which is why I think a lot of people have got a renewed interest in the Tudors, Henry VIII. How historically accurate do you think that trilogy is? And, and, and the Netflix series as well. Extra well, I mean, extraordinarily accurate. I think what Mantell did so beautifully was to blend the fact and the fiction. We have the, you know, we have the how and the what, but Mantell sort of gives us the why in which in, in this extraordinary marriage. And she really did mine a number of theses and history books to make it as accurate as possible. Of course, she has taken artistic license, but she also manages to deliver the history of the period without it being too obvious. She will slip in really in incredible details like Thomas Cromwell is reading a book that's been brought in from Italy. Well, what she's telling us without telling us is he's reading Machiavelli. It's a book that the Il Principe has just been brought in. So there's an incredible, an incredible layer upon layer of detail that you almost don't catch because of the way that she's actually inserted it. But it, it's it's to me, it's one of the most accurate depictions of the period. Of course, I mean, not, not all the characters look the way I imagine them. And the TV 
series is equally accurate. I think that's why people were complaining it was so dark because they didn't have any, they only had the natural lighting. But you know what? I mean, I don't think you can win. If, if, if it's too glamorous like the Showtime series, The Tudors, then we complain it's not accurate. If it's too accurate, we say, well, we can't see what's happening. <laughs> so we can't, we can't win. But certainly I think Mantell is the benchmark of historical accuracy. Lauren, thank you so very much. It's been fantastic talking to you. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to be updated on new episodes of The Thinking Traveller, please subscribe wherever you source your podcast. Or if you would like access to our library of blog articles and videos or details of our small group tours, visit our website at academytravel.com.au. Thank you for listening.